0: Welcome to another exciting episode uh, of uh, a webinar podcast series by Dr. Online and uh, Imagine Spence Kenya Foundation. Uh, My name is Dr. Benjamin Oshira and I'm really excited about this evening's production. And so today we have a fantastic guest uh, joining us, a very good friend of mine who has mentored me over the years, me how to do stuff. Um, and I'm really excited to have him join us today and I'll let him introduce himself. The exciting part is we work at the same institution in two different parts of the world. Um, so really excited to have uh, Professor Yunaid Razak joining us today. Um, so today's discussion is mainly around trauma and trauma care in low middle income settings. And um, I don't think there's an expert as good as you, Yunaid. So maybe we could start with a bit of introduction of, um, Where are you? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Great. Uh, Thank you, uh, Ben. And thank you, Dr. Ari, for this opportunity. It's wonderful to be here, to be part of this uh, conversation. Uh, My name is Junaid Razak. I am a professor of emergency medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine, New York. Uh, I also uh, direct the Center of Excellence for Trauma and Emergencies at the Aga Khan University in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. Um, I uh, have had an exciting emergency medicine career uh, I trained in emergency medicine uh, in the U.S. Uh, many years ago, uh, worked there as a clinician in the emergency department, then moved to uh, Karachi, where, which is uh, the city I was born, and uh, uh, worked on establishing the, uh, uh, a fairly large, complex emergency department, uh, started a new residency program in emergency medicine, and helped the country uh, begin the journey towards emergency medicine. And while I was doing that, I had an opportunity to start and country's first uh, advanced life support ambulance service Uh, and um, Karachi, which is a city of 20 million people, um, we were able to uh, set up a, I'm biased, but I think it was a pretty good service, (laughs) uh, with with physicians on the ambulances and nurses. uh, And we were recognized by our peers And um, we also ran a WHO collaborating center on emergencies and trauma. And a few years ago, uh, moved back to uh, uh, US uh, as a professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, and a center director, and now I'm back in New York and part-time in New York and partly in Karachi. Karachi.
0: Good. All right, for those who are wondering why I'm wearing a t-shirt written tipsy, so tipsy is not that I'm drunk, um, so TIPS is the Injury Prevention and Safety Initiative, an initiative by the Emergency Medicine Kenya Foundation, that looks at trauma, uh, bringing in to healthcare providers to look at trauma, injury, research, and prevention, and looking at how best we can address our systems. So you need, you've said you've got a lot of experience um, um, in trauma development and trauma care in lower and, low and middle-income settings. Um, maybe you could share a bit of what you've done, where you've done it, and how that Looks similar to maybe our setting here in Kenya?
1: Yeah, um, many things, but a couple of things that come to my mind is uh, working with policymakers uh, in uh, the province I was working and I was um, in charge, the provincial in charge of trauma system development at the, at, the, at the local governor's house. So that gave me a lot of access to policymakers, how they think, and what uh, what helps them make decisions, and how uh, us as clinicians, us as academicians help them make the decisions. So that was one role. And then, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, starting an EMS service uh, uh, in, in a private sector, and EMS is complex, so working across all sectors and making sure that people have buy-in to this. Uh, so that was second, and then of course, Emergency medicine development uh, in terms of residency program and expanding it to multiple places uh, was interesting. I think all of that, and in my brief experience uh, here in Kenya, I think is highly applicable. Uh, Of course, there are local nuances, but uh, uh, I I was smiling yesterday when um, people were talking about the challenges, and it's a very similar story. if you just need to change the names of the players <laughs> and the actors, it's such a similar story. It's amazing. And uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot of it applicable to wherever we go and where we practice.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think, so. a lot of people, I'm guessing, with a lot of people working uh, or watching this and probably working in settings where a lot of these things are not developed. And it's interesting that you say you started an EMS program and it's what we really are trying to look at setting up in Kenya and setting up systems here in Kenya. Um, and you've had the benefit of having experience from a well-resourced country, that's the U.S., I guess, and also working in low and middle-income country settings. So what makes, what makes, why can't we just copy paste? Why can't we just take, it works in the U.S.? Why can't we just take, um, what works in the U.S. and just plaster it all over what, our local setting? What makes our settings unique? And why do we have to think about this differently as low and middle-income setting, uh,
1: Areas, yeah. No, it's a great question. I the first obviously difference is resources. You have, say, for example, U.S. spending eight to ten thousand dollars per capita per year on health. Pakistan spends for sixty dollars, so eight thousand <laughs> and sixty dollars. Big difference. Yes. Uh, um, uh, probably similar numbers in Kenya here. So we have to be smart about what we pick up. From high income countries, and we should be selecting what is most effective to apply in low income settings. We get the best return on investment. The, the other uh, difference is um, I feel like there is a lot more interest, even though people complain a lot about developing countries, low middle. I feel like if you can convince the right people, there is a, a very uh, the openness to making changes is, is much more so in low-middle-income countries if you get the right partner on the ground. Uh, and uh, in high-income countries, because systems are well-developed, changing something small takes forever. So, for example, um, in, in terms of EMS in, in Karachi, we went from no ambulance or ALS ambulance to 100 ambulances in nine months. Whoa. Squid. In nine months, we were able to recruit thousands of people in the service, uh, make protocols, make it run, and achieve eight-minute response time. Let's... And that was possible. Th- these are things that are possible in countries where there is a real commitment and energy. You have a lot of young people who want to make a difference, uh, uh, which I sometimes miss in the U.S. You know, People are very calculated. They're... they. Are, they're comfortable in how they, how they do, want to do things. And in Pakistan, I felt like we were able to make rapid changes, put the right teams together. Who would to work? Who would not look at their watches? Five o'clock, I want to go home. <laughs> they want to make a difference. Right? I thought there was some of the differences between the two settings. Right, good.
0: And so do we need to have that much money to make... Um... Trauma care work in Kenya or in other low and middle income countries—is this about the money or what is it? What can we peg it? Can we say we're just too poor to provide uh, trauma care in Kenya? We're just too poor to develop trauma systems in Kenya? Is it just the money? Or yes,
1: yeah, money is probably third in in oh. terms of barriers. I think it is uh, the the understanding and commitment. I tell you, in in Karachi, when we used to run. A fairly large EMS service I described before, um, for the population at the population level, the cost was one dollar per person per year or less.
0: Wow! So per so person per year. Per year. Okay. <laughs> so
1: it's a cost of coverage, right? Is per transport is more expensive, but not everybody in the population will need transport every day. You know, in a, in in a population, in our population especially. People would call ambulances when they really needed. Oh. And uh, and we were triaging on on phone and we were going to the, the real emergencies. And we were able to cover, as I mentioned, um, even 50 cents for the operational cost. Yes, there is some, some startup cost, but even then it is nothing. I tell you, the, the cost of running, for example, EMS service in, in Nairobi, I would assume, is less than... Uh, the cost of running a medium-sized hospital. Um, And so we have hundreds of hospitals in the country. And people are scared of starting EMS service. Once you start the EMS service, uh, you will see the difference in how the system works. And if a politician was listening to me, I would say if you want to get
0: votes, it is the best investment you can make. <laughs> yeah, we just have a new government check in, so I think hopefully they're listening.
1: Yeah, because what you will see, this is a mobile, noisy uh, advertisement of your effort. So, um, so that's a first part of trauma system. I think the hospital piece does not require a lot of a lot of uh, money investment. It requires changes in how we do things. So I would say, you know, putting trauma teams together and we. Have
0: Discuss that, yes.
1: You know, working together, changing the culture, making some basic treatment uh, uh, protocols, that will start making a difference.
0: Oh. Okay, so I think I think it's there's the theory and there's the practice. I think what us want us to do is just go into the meat of things, um, because we have providers from across the country, and um, yes, you need to go speak to your politician about getting ambulances. But we've seen that happen before, where people just buy ambulances or building the system. So I think I want to understand now the practicality. Um, what works, what have you seen from the science and from other areas, especially low and middle income, low and middle-income countries? And we'll start at the community level. Okay. So I've been hit by a border border in our setting out in the community. Um, community response. What models have you seen work in settings similar to ours? Um, Do we go and train all the border border riders in doing first aid? Do we train every school-going person in first aid? So what community models have been piloted in settings similar to ours that have worked?
1: Yes. Um, This is such an important question. Because in trauma care and in cardiac arrest, and some of the major emergencies we deal with, uh, minutes and seconds count. And even with the best EMS system, I would say, you know, uh, perhaps any city in New York, any city in in Europe, uh, any city in in the U.S. like New York, the response time is often double digit, 10 minutes, 12, 15 minutes. In many cases, it's too long of a time. And in our setting, um, we will not get the ambulance, at least in the short term, to do any of the interventions. So, what can the community do? And I think there are two main things the community can do, and we can teach and train communities to do those things. Uh, stop the bleeding. Okay. Nobody should die in the field because of bleeding, external bleeding. So stop the external bleeding if you see it. And get the patient to the right hospital if you don't have a proper transport system. So, you know, a lot of people will bring the patient to the closest dispensary and clinic. Uh, you know, in, in their sense, trying to help the patients out. But then that's not the place where the patient needs to go. Uh-huh. So having um, open communication with the community and describing where to take the patient. Now, Bodovar is a pretty interesting group because these are captured population. And they're also in the transport business. So if you can train them on stopping the bleeding and safe transportation to an appropriate hospital... Think you'll make a big difference.
0: What do you mean, stop the bleeding? I mean, so should we go? So, what are we going to teach the community members? What should we advocate in that every community member? When you say stop the bleeding, is just apply put a bandage or What is it? Yeah, like what are the practical tips? Because right. we want to go back to this community, we want to stop the bleeding. But how do we do that?
1: Right, so when I use the term stop the bleeding, I'm talking with stop the bleeding program. Oh, okay, sorry, I should explain this. So, stop, <laughs> the, stop the bleeding program is a program of American College of Surgeons, but you know, the, this is a very basic uh, set of interventions starting with putting pressure okay. on where do you see the external bleeding how, is. How, and, and take a piece of cloth, just go and put the pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, people are scared of, of, of causing more harm. Mm-hmm. But if you see the bleeding, you will not harm by putting a piece of cloth, whatever you can get. The, the cleanest it is, the better it is. Put it for the few, five minutes pressure, uh-huh. you know. And then, you know, put a strong bandage around it. The second thing that you know, in some cases people are recommending, I'm not sure if you can recommend in our setting, is a use of tourniquet.
0: We don't have tourniquets. Because you don't have (laughs) tourniquets.
1: So that's why I said, tourniquets is probably a good idea in places where it's easily available.
0: What about makeshift tourniquets?
1: There is a debate around that. Uh The the debate is that they don't stop the bleeding because they don't have enough tensile strength Uh to close the circulation. And, uh, at least based on the recommendations from some some of the experts in this area, they say that we prefer not to use locally made tourniquets. Okay. Has uh, any
0: study been done looking at use of local tourniquets perhaps? Maybe something worth looking into.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, I was looking at... Uh, recently we were looking at this tourniquet as $25 or $10, mm. $15. That is never going to be useful for us. And one of the things we wanted to do actually very soon in Pakistan is to get locally manufactured tourniquet. Ah, Try it out on some mannequin. local
0: production. Yeah,
1: and see yes. at what pressure. You know, you can have a mannequin with a blood pressure cuff on it and see if mm. you can start bring the pressure up and see when the tourniquet stops uh, stop functioning. So uh, that's why I said tourniquet is useful if it's available. If it's not available, just using your two hands for pressure. Just like, you know, we use two hands for CPR. Using two hands for pressure while the help is arriving. Uh-huh. That is good enough. Uh, you know, um, we are also teaching as part of stop the bleeding that if the wound is deep, put the packing in. Whatever clothes you put it in.
0: Uh-huh. Put the pressure. So you so can that... put any piece of cloth, as long as it's clean, I'm guessing. Yeah. So my piece of shirt, for example, I can stuff yeah. it inside the, yeah. ble- the yeah. wound to stop the bleeding. Because
1: nobody has said nobody should die of bleeding. Bleeding, yeah. And after head injury, the second cause of early death is bleeding. So. Yeah. And as you know, many bleeding are internal, thoracic, Good. abdominal, um, and those we, we can really do little about without coming to the hospital. But external bleeding is also quite common.
0: Mm. Especially Spe- from interpersonal violence, nice. for example. And we have seen a lot of it in some areas of the country, a lot right. of interpersonal violence, yes.
1: Especially penetrating injuries, mm. knife injuries, uh, bullet wounds. In those cases, if we can train our community members, our college students, boda boda drivers, I think we can save a lot of lives.
0: So. Okay, good. So, so one thing we're going to do is potentially teach the community to stop the bleeding. Okay, so that's the thing is important. You mentioned about teaching them where to take these patients. So, where where can they just take them to the dispensary? I know you've mentioned that they, but so what qualifies as an adequate place to for someone in the community to, to take a patient who's been involved in trauma?
1: Yeah, um, you know, every s- system it defines it differently. Uh, in the system I work in, or I'm used to, uh, level 1 trauma centers are the destination hospitals. We don't even
0: know what those are. Right.
1: <laughs> and, and we'll come to that. Yep. Um, you know, um, trauma care is, the way to save lives is to stop the external bleeding and to stop the internal bleeding. And stopping the internal bleeding, for example, interabdominal bleeding, often requires surgery, except in one case where we have a medication, that, I'll come to mm-hmm. that. Uh, and so one needs to get to a place where there is enough diagno- diagnostic available to diagnose that bleeding. And so I'm talking about
0: ultrasound and potentially, CT, but ultrasound, I think, ultrasound. and we'll get to the A D parts of it. Right. But I think ultrasound is one of the things that you can for. Absolutely, yep. absolutely.
1: And you know, ultrasound, and if this is a, um, of course, a educated audience here with uh, who knows emergency care mm. uh, um, focused uh, ultrasonography for, uh, for for trauma. Um, is is a lifesaver an early detection of that is very helpful ct scan where i practice in new york every patient gets a ct scan and uh, most of them don't need it but <laughs> I, th- I think it is uh, probably a lot of waste uh in the setting here ultrasound,
0: does ultrasound. The job. so i think i mean if we actually to just narrow it down to the bare minimum of what a facility should have of course you should have a theater services but also should have an ultrasound and of course chain providers are able to do focus assessment of sonography in trauma um for those who are listening online feel free to put up your questions in the chat or put up your questions in the q and a and we'll try and address them um, so that i'm not asking all the questions um so feel free to put up questions; we'll be able to discuss um so we've looked at um the community responders and i think the message coming here is we need to educate our community responders on how to stop bleeding and also where to take a patient. So ideally, you should refer a patient to a facility, which has a functioning theater and, of course, that has an ultrasound and training, staff trained on how to use that ultrasound. So I think that's a good message. Um, So one of the things that we we don't have is a well-coordinated ambulance access system. Um and uh, multiple areas have actually bought ambulances and are operating in some level or other, but we do not have that emergency access number like 911 or 112. Is it worthwhile for us to invest in this? Is it, um Or can we just use different numbers to call different ambulances? I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I think having single universal access number is critical starting point of a trauma system. And it doesn't cost a lot, it is the political will and somebody putting together a number. You can have behind that multiple ambulance services, but for, from public's perspective, having a single number is very important. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, in, in Karachi, we had multiple numbers. Uh, some were legacy numbers, old numbers, and uh, politicians were, were struggling to stop some of the older numbers. So I went to, I used to go to schools and I used to talk to school kids about the ambulance service and emergency care and what number to call. Uh, I went to one of the schools uh, and I asked kids uh, how many remember a number to call an ambulance. So, you know, the class of 50 kids, about 15, 10, 15 people rose, rose their hand. And I asked them, what number would you call? And the most common number they said was nine one one.
0: Yeah, because of watching American movies. I know, it's it? <laughs> <laughs> crazy.
1: And it's like I'm sitting in a in a relatively low income school in Karachi, middle of Karachi, and they know the number of nine one one, but they do not know the number in Karachi. Wow! So it's the marketing of it's it. It's the marketing. Yes. It is how, it, and I don't know what kids are hearing, but say probably hearing from some of the yeah uh, video games or TV programs mm. or something. So. I think having one and then we confuse people by multiple numbers have a single number and you can use that number i i I think it's very helpful not just to send the transport even if you don't have a Mm transport but to support the bystander on what decisions to make Ah. which hospital should i take this patient to okay okay where are you what are the injuries i can tell you which you can have 10 well-trained people on a on a call center and they can manage a million
0: patient population. Wow! so it's not necessarily, yes, there's a need to have a dispatch system against the number and a call setting ambulance, but you actually just can set up the number to answer public calls and provide that public information that people actually need. Right. Um, I think that's actually one different way of looking into it and a very nice way of looking into it because we always say, let's wait for us to buy ambulances, set up a dispatch center, get all the ducks in a row before we get a number in place. But I think maybe we should be advocating to get a number in place that people know where to access information, emergency information. information. I think that makes a lot of sense um, and uh, is more practical. And I think that's also, you mentioned, so the role of telephone support. So what kind of information, so what's the benefit? So let's say we set up, okay, so we we do not really have uh, enough ambulances to have them responding adequately. What kind of information can this number provide? I know you mentioned it can't provide, but what kind of information? So if you we were to set up and put up uh, people to answer the call, what kind of information should they be able to provide?
1: So I think there are two roles of that dispatch system. First role is to help assess the patient. And as you might know, uh, multiple the, the multiple algorithms that are quick questions on how is the patient doing? And so they can ask about is patient breathing or not, their pulse, start the CPR, patient bleeding, take a uh, clean piece of cloth and and put pressure on it. Those kinds of very clear instructions can be given. So that's one set of helping the bystander gain confidence on what they can and cannot do. That's number one. Number two, they will tell and assist the bystanders in deciding which is the right and appropriate facility for this kind of patient. If somebody has you know, minor scratches, they may not need to go to a large facility. They can go to dispensary, but there's a real trauma, somebody who is who is unconscious, has bleeding, significant bleeding, they should be taken. That decision can also be done by dispatch. The
0: dispatch center.
1: And as you might have heard, I just finished my thought by saying, you might have heard about dispatch-assisted CPR.
0: Okay, well, yeah. Now,
1: they had, a, they had that function, can be brought to dispatch assisted decision making.
0: Because uh, I think one of the things that people, yes, um, the expectation of course is you'll be looking for an ambulance, but a lot of the things you're saying is the decision making behind uh, where should I take this patient. And actually, most people don't actually know where to take the patient. They will always rely and say, which is a nearest healthcare facility. So maybe having a dispatch function that Provides that information because most patients will still arrive in many emergency departments by private transport. So having a reference point to say, oh, where you go to this hospital, don't go to this hospital right. because of that, I think uh, is a very good point. And I think once we have that set up and have that number publicized, that would be some of the things. I see someone uh, commenting on the chat about border borders using elastic bands. So, it's as uh, you mentioned earlier, the science behind that is not clear. But as you say, just put pressure on it, put pressure on it if it's a penetrating injury, put something and put pressure, and then just tie that around. Um, so until we have very good evidence, I mean, that's what I think we need to look at. Um, in terms of uh, the being able to stop the bleeding, no, in terms of trauma center, so we've not really gone into the definition of trauma centers i know what we are working on at the moment is the issue of being able to define the emergency centers and then being able to make sure that these emergency centers can actually handle trauma and we've done a lot of that work on that Uh, for those if you actually have the casualty app it has listed for you you actually have the geographical location of all the emergency centers in in kenya both public and private so you actually can access that information what we're doing is to making sure that these facilities then are able to provide the service when you arrive. So that's still part of the work that we are working on towards. Okay, so I think uh, in Kenya, 911 only works for it's a police number. So, 911 calls police. Um, a good number of countries are looking to set up dispatch centers with single numbers. So, it's good to explain even to policymakers that it's fine. We're not asking you to set up a number, so then we have to demand ambulances from you. Right. But you can actually just set up a number to help Kenyans uh, who are helping people in the community and being able to answer the appropriate uh, questions. So, I think. The other question I really want to discuss, um, issues around EMS providers. Should they, how much training is required? Should we build them up all to become ALS providers because of maybe our longer pre-hospital times? So do we need more ALS providers or more BLS providers or people who have this first aid training? So I don't know what science has shown from the different setting. What should we do? like how much training is this required for this pre-hospital care?
1: Yes, I, I, I would say the, the answer is a little nuanced. For urban areas, BLS type of training is enough.
0: Okay. Uh, so you said trans- BLS, is, I'm guessing it's above first aid. Yes,
1: or, sir. Yeah. So I'm, t- I'm talking about at least 40 hours of training. So 40 well, hours
0: of training, okay.
1: So 40 hours of, of uh, didactic training and some ambulance-based training, some mentorship on the ambulance. Hmm. So um, a, a person who hopefully has some background, in healthcare uh, can be taken through um, what, the, what we call first responder scores, and they will learn how to provide basic care. you know in, in many you know I am not for advanced airway management in EMS, especially for trauma, it is doing minimum that's going to save life. It is making stopping the bleeding and taking the patient quickly to the right hospital uh-huh. So therefore, for trauma care. Okay, for cardiac arrest, they need to be able to do CPR and do AEDs. you know if a person is not surviving with those, the chances are they're not going to survive. and spending any more resources on them might not be able to do CPR, and electricity, mm. automatic external defibrillators are two known interventions. Mm. and for, for other other inter, other uh, emergencies, it is really uh, causing no harm and transporting the patient is going to be important for rural areas.
0: Which is pretty much all of Kenya, but with the, uh,
1: with the transport time, it's yes. going to be hours. Yes, I think you'll have to think about what are the critical illnesses you will be transporting. Okay, okay. and in terms of um, in terms of disease entities, I, I will think about shock, uh-huh. shock caused by trauma, but also very importantly caused by hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage, diarrhea, sepsis somebody who has skill set to manage shock.
0: Okay, so fluids. So we should flu- be giving flu- fluid. right. Yes, okay.
1: Fluid management and, and, and being able to monitor putting an IV in. Uh, in. There are studies that looked at giving blood during prolonged transportation. There's some evidence that they may help. Again, in the prolonged transportation, not in half an hour transportation, 15 minutes, because by the time you get the blood going, uh. you should be in the hospital by that time. Uh, so I think from... From from the Kenyan perspective, and I'll I'll use my Pakistan sort of understanding, I think if you can get somewhere where people are, help them out, transport them and treat shock, you can save a lot of lives.
0: Okay. So so if we're looking at the skills, then our pre-hospital providers should really be emphasizing on and be more skilled on. So you said in an urban setting, you need more BLS, mm-hmm. of skills, uh 40 hour training class in areas where you're having long transport time then the focus should be on shock management so because i know we all get excited about airway management and all fancy cool stuff that we can do but i think as you can say from a trauma perspective shock is the biggest problem that we probably will be dealing with and also looking at issues of um so drugs tranexamic acid for example i don't know
1: yeah (laughs) so if i had to carry a couple of drugs in the ambulances um, epinephrine.
0: Epinephrine. Oh yeah, so cardiac cancer is good, right. epinephrine. Uh, also
1: for anaphylaxis. That's well, adrenaline.
0: I you know people are like, what's epinephrine. Adrenaline. Yes. Uh, yeah. Adrenaline.
1: <laughs> um, and TXA. Translamicazis, Trans- Trans- yeah. Now Translamicazis is very interesting because it is one of the few emergency drugs that have been, really been tested in in, in, in experimental environment. Uh, over 20,000 patients in, uh, uh, I believe, 30 or so countries. And it shows mortality benefit. And it is extremely cheap drug. Uh, so you have um, uh, the medication initially tested for blunt trauma, then tested for head injuries, where it's a mixed results, then tested for uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, I think that is an interesting drug. And for, for stop, stopping the bleeding, it's important while we try and get the for drugs. And then, of course, IV fluids. Yeah, you, you know, whatever your, your normal series, yes. like, uh, like ringless lactate, whatever you can give. Uh, and that will require ability to put an IV in.
0: And uh, those are the skills that you want. The skills that are required. Uh, because I think one of the things that we always. Because I know there are some studies that look at do not give. There's that discussion about giving too much fluids in the field. Yeah. Does that work? It, is that an issue in our setting? Right.
1: Yeah. I think it, it
0: is an issue.
1: It's an issue. It, it is an issue. Uh, we need to teach people what is a normal blood pressure. you know we teach people that one twenty over eighty <laughs> is a normal blood pressure uh, but what is truly an abnormal blood pressure that needs treatment is very different
0: okay
1: and um, over time, we have learned that we tolerate hypotension relatively better uh, and sometimes over aggressive treatment can cause a problem so um, um yes, when the patient is of course has you know, blood pressure, uh, or we call it mean arterial blood pressure, of 40 or you know even uh, 50 30s, we need to treat it. Uh, but a mean arterial pressure of 60, so somebody with a systolic pressure of 90 um, over 60, I would be careful not treat. Mm-hmm. I'll watch it very very carefully. I'm ready to give fluid, but not push fluid.
0: Push fluids a lot. Yeah. Okay. So keeping a systolic around 90 or more right. about 65. Yeah. So I think that works. So look at some of the questions online. Can mobile service providers divert 911 calls to active EMS numbers? Uh, probably not because these are private. So there's that challenge. So, But what we're working on is actually to have a functioning national uh, single access ambulance access number. But also the whole idea of it just being a call center where you can get emergency access information, uh, is one of the things that I think we'll definitely be looking to explore because we have providers who can answer these phone calls. Yes, we don't necessarily have the ambulances, but you can provide that information that probably will be life-saving. Um, in terms of there's a reluctance to help a stranger in the need of personal care for fear of legal repercussions, should they make some mistake or treatment first aid? Um, how is this actually, yes. Is there, things around the whole good Samaritan discussion. There- can you go to jail? <laughs>
1: So nobody has been sent to jail. Yes. But everybody scared of going to jail. It's yeah. a right scare. <laughs> yes. Um, it. You know, when you look at why people don't respond, it's a very important question. It is not that people don't want to help, but we have created either real or perceived barriers to, to people responding. And one barrier is medical legal thing. Now, if you look at some of the countries, for example, India, um, mm. I think Iran, uh, countries. Re- and, and I don't know about this region, but mm. I'm sure there are regional countries that have created good samaritan laws okay and good samaritan laws are it makes sense if you're trying to help somebody you should not be penalized good samaritan laws basically guarantees that if you are bystander you you try to help somebody and try to save their lives you will not be asked questions you know you'll not be penalized for it you bring the patient to the hospital and then you're done by law nobody can call you once you start doing those kinds of things, you start, remo- start removing barriers to people so trying to help. So I think we are trying to do that in, uh, in Pakistan as part of the, in the largest province, uh, as part of the EMS. They've tried to uh, give this Good Samaritan law touch, but not completely. Uh-huh. This is one thing we, will, we would like to do. And perhaps here in Kenya, it might be worthwhile.
0: I think something, because in our laws, I know everyone has a right to emergency medical treatment. I don't think you can actually sue someone if you tried help on something. I don't think, uh, I think it's, it's more, it's, uh, but not really documented. Yeah. But I think just before I move into the in-hospital setting, you said you set up the EMS system in Karachi. Um... Just give us some practical tips how you went around this. So, assumingly, I'm going next week to have a discussion with a policymaker in my county. Um, and so, and they want to, because I'm going to say, okay, so fine, we need an emergency access number and we need to buy X amount of ambulances. So, we need so many that have basic or just fast response. So, what are the practical things that you may have experienced and trying to judge how you should set this up right. so maybe from your experience
1: yeah yeah of course um so the first thing you need is a call center mm-hmm. and a number okay. and the call center with today's technology uh, either and, and there are softwares available that will help you with ems dispatch system so the number lands in in my system uh, somebody will pick up the phone Will start getting the information ready and when they get to the address and have asked a few questions Will pass on this piece of paper to the person next. To is that practical? So you're writing it down, ambu- address is this here next. Right. <laughs> so that the other person is now looking at the screen or where the ambulances are, uh-huh. will contact the, the nearest this. ambulance and say, I have this address. This is the chief complaint. I want you to go there now.
0: And so who are these providers? We just want to right. stop. Yeah, so the person answering the phone, how trained are they? What's their training? They get training in being a dispatcher. Okay. How and that, long is that?
1: Yeah, and that training is about uh, a month. Okay. And the training itself is actually short, but the practice takes a long time. Okay. And they are being monitored for how quick they are getting the information. Mm. And when they when they respond, there is a clear algorithm, there is a protocol, um, uh, emergency medical dispatch system. Uh, it's available for anybody to look at. Those, that is a standard throughout the world, same standard. Mm so you pick up You first you ask the question first thing you ask is uh, tell me your phone number in case we get disconnected
0: uh, so yeah i want your phone number first okay good so uh-huh. you write
1: the first phone number where are you calling from mm-hmm. what happened
0: okay so three questions what's your phone number where are you calling from what happened so they say you know my mother is for example not responding
1: so then there is on that dispatch system Uh, there is an algorithm for what questions to ask for unresponsive patient. So you go to that and you ask two or three questions. And that algorithm will tell you exactly what is the level of response you'll need or triage level. So those systems already exist. You need to call center with the dispatchers, obviously a number. You need a wireless transfer, in my case, wireless system so my dispatcher can communicate with the ambulance. (laughs) And for that, we needed the wireless frequency. Uh, which does not compete with police or others uh, and that for us it took us a little bit of time but because we're emergency service
0: this we is got radio the, communication radio itself. radio communication we use radio
1: communication okay. primarily uh, because we felt that in certain areas the the phone con- was not very good uh, at that time now things have changed so, uh, so then the wireless network you need now to have wireless network your command control need to have wireless tower uh. And then you need to have towers across. Oh. Now, what we did was, and and you could, we put our own in some areas. In some areas, we went to mobile companies. Everybody has their towers, Ooh. and we said,
0: "Can we use Can your towers?" Use your towers. Oh, so you don't have to, because I think if you look at most of our mobile providers, they have towers across the country. Yeah. So we could tag onto their towers right. to increase the frequency. Right. Yep. Right.
1: <laughs> so, so what happens is uh, when you call a wireless, it, it sort of Hops from one tower to another and finds the nearest tower and communicate. So that's the second thing you need. Then you need people in the ambulance and the ambulance itself. Uh,
0: and how many ambulances do you need? So when you started, okay, well, let's just ambulance, then you'll tell me where you got trained providers right. from. Yes. So we
1: estimated standard is one ambulance per 100,000 person. Population.
0: Ah, so is that based on any science or is it just something that you figured? No,
1: no. This is a science. yeah
0: So one yeah. ambulance for 100,000 population. 100, okay.
1: You know, it's, I'm t- telling the Western, you can say, well, you know, 100,000 probably is too little. Maybe I'll start with 200,000.
0: Okay. Now, what's but it, your target is 100,000. Yeah. One to 100,000. Right. So okay. for,
1: for us, city of 20 million, we're thinking about 400 ambulances. Okay. We said, we'll be happy with 200. Let's start with that. Start with 100, see how it goes. So that is the standard you want to get to eventually. And the second thing that will determine is, can I get to the emergency in the response time? I want the emergency to be there. So you may have a very sparse population or a very large area. So your transport times are higher. Yes. So in those populations, you may put in an ambulance for a small population because your transport time is in city, you have 100,000, 200,000. So
0: you're factoring in the population size. Right. So for those who are online, maybe you can do the math for us. In Nairobi, we are 3 million people. So if you need one ambulance per 100,000, how many ambulances do we need in Nairobi? Um, but then, so what transport times are we targeting? Right. Um, like, do we want you to get to the appropriate facility in how long? What's our right. target?
1: So we say, that the target was that every cardiac arrest we think that every minute causes you know 10% reduction in survival we should be t- try to get there before 10 minutes
0: 10 minutes okay so uh, so response time of 10 minutes so every person should be able to from when you have an emergency uh, an ambulance should get to you and transport you to the to the hospital within 10 minutes or oh, the time yeah. you call 911 yes to the time ambulance gets there, 10 minutes. Gets to you. Oh, okay. So it's time to you getting to right. you. Okay. Yeah. So when you're looking at it, so there's the issue of one to 100,000 population, but everyone should be able to access an ambulance within 10 minutes. Right. Okay, good.
1: Now, right. I'm going average average time, right? Yes. So, it, you know, when you are getting the phone call, I'll go back and them to dispatcher, and when they're triaging patients, the current triage system that I'm familiar with uh, triages patients from echo type of calls which is the most severe echo delta charlie beta mm. and alpha you might have heard this in the ems realm yes, yes. and they, so if there's an echo call you want to go get there as soon as possible because the patient's dead or dying you have alpha call you know this patient is not sick <laughs> so
0: you say,
1: this patient can wait 30 minutes ah. that patient i want to get in five minutes
0: which one the one the echo, echo one yes
1: so the average is 10
0: minutes but, ah, but you so play. will from 5 minutes yeah. to 20 minutes so that's good uh, look I mean I'm seeing people have already done the math so we only need 30 ambulances in Nairobi because we have a population of 3 million actually I know there are way more than 30 ambulances in Nairobi so I think some of us really don't really understand the math and it's good you're bringing it up is we don't need 100 ambulances in Nairobi even when you're going to have this discussion at county level the policymaker, you should be like this is our population uh, we are a million in this in this um, county, we just need 10 ambulances. But I think, I think the other part of which to look at it is that response time, as you said. So you want for your emergencies to be there within five minutes, for your non-emergencies to be there within 20 minutes. So on average, a 10-minute response time is what you're looking at. So those looking to speak to policymakers, those working to design EMS systems, are the fa- other fa- some of the factors to think about, which is good. Uh-huh. What's the other one?
1: So the other thing, then the question is, where do I park my ambulance? Uh-huh. So you need to be smart about it, right? You say, you know, I want to park my ambulances to reduce the response time. I know that this intersection has a lot of uh, road traffic crashes. This area has other emergencies because it's very uh, densely populated. You start putting your ambulances smartly and you learn from the numbers you're yes. getting. Uh, you start today, you may not be very good, but a year from now, you have data to prove but well, you know, I think I need three more ambulances in this area, and I can work with only one in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start placing, mapping, your, out, your mapping out, and your EM, your your GPS, GIS system is helping you there. Then you come to the people in the ambulance. So you know, uh, for us, we wanted to go with Advanced Life support Ambulance. Mm-hmm. Now, ALS means ability to give medications.
0: And fancy equipment.
1: Fancy equipment, yes. <laughs> and and uh, so equipment was okay, but for me, it was the risk was uh, who is licensed to give medication?
0: Uh, yes. Yeah.
1: Now, physicians are always, always uh, licensed. Nurses are licensed if ordered by the physician. Aha. Uh-huh. So we created a, a, a system where we had initially got physicians in the ambulances, while we trained nurses and then we had nursing protocol and the medical director signed those protocols giving standing orders to nurses if you see this give this medication mm-hmm. so we created this system got it approved for legally yes. and all that uh, uh, we even though we are doctors and, and nurses we trained them for six months oh we, so you yeah for initially six months. for yeah. six months we got them we sent them to various emergency departments we took them through the standard course that i mm. described but then I, we wanted them to experience emergency care in the hospital. We worked with a few hospitals. They agreed to train our nurses, getting them experience of how hospitals work. then they were ha- they would have so two months in the hospital, and then three months ride along with a senior person on the ambulance.
0: Okay. so interesting. So so we've been trying, so do you have EMTs in uh, Karachi? We do have EMTs in Karachi. How does that work? Uh,
1: and somebody you know we discussed today earlier, that there was no licensing,
0: mm-hmm. we have the same problem right. which trying to fix, yes.
1: And uh, doctors and nursing societies were not accepting it. And initially, we had to go to the technical board of the government, those that that you know give licensing for plumbing or you know <laughs> other thing, and they were happy to do it. Once they got license, and the license was giving them authority to practice, very limited one. We started to then lobby with the government. The
0: government lobby. And say, look,
1: we want them to be able to do these very basic stuff. And and that started to change things. Uh, We have uh, limited interventions with EMTs. And those where we need critical transport, we still have nurses. And their transportation.
0: Because I know, I think, yeah, I think even in our model, yes, we have a lot of EMTs who have been trained and we're really working with the government to have them licensed. Um, but I think in bulk of areas, there's still a lot of nursing. So I think one of the messages I'm getting from this is not just you just can't pick up the nurse from the ward and put in the ambulance and tell her to transport the patient. Right. There's a need for us to look at training the existing nurses who work in these ambulances to transport. And I just say it's a six-month training. So I think that's a very important thing to look at. So it's not just saying, assuming that the nurse you pick up from the ward can happily transport a patient. So, as we look at having EMTs license, uh, license, but I think also looking at empowering the existing nurses into their EMS programs, I think is quite useful. So, I think this is really good. Uh, I think uh, very nice convo- uh, discussions. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I think one of the things we can look at is now moving more into the emergency department. I think we've had enough insights into um the pre-hospital setting tell me in karachi were you there when they said emergency medicine or were you the one who said emergency medicine
1: <laughs> yeah no, i
0: i i wrote the,
1: the 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 curriculum i wrote the proposal i went and presented multiple times i was ignored forever yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then when they couldn't ignore me uh they, they accepted it
0: so what was your emergency departments before you set it up, like what, what, how are the, what, what, what existed before, I guess, well set up EDs?
1: Yeah, so you know, um, uh, unlike some other specialties, EDs are always there.
0: Mm-hmm. They're always emergency physicians who are attempting to do be- as best as they could. So they're always doctors. I wouldn't say emergency they're just doctors who work right. in the emergency department. So,
1: so you know, in, in, in my country, they're called casualty medical officers or senior medical officers. They were untrained, not trained in emergency medicine. Uh, some of them were good, some of them were not very good. There was a highly variable level of care. Um, the, there was a limited triage. People were brought in uh, based on first-come, first-served basis instead of who needs the care first. So we changed the triage model. We started to train people, first the medical officers. Um, we realized that the facility was small, and there was... Um, the entrance to the walk-ins and the ambulances and everything, everybody was the same. So we started to redesign the, the facility. Mm-hmm. And the hospital I used to work at was very interested in creating a model emergency department. So we were able to redesign and expand our emergency department. We started the residency program, which changed the the game, right? And you have residents in the emergency department. They own the emergency department. They feel bad about poor care. They want to improve things because Mm. it's their identity. I think we feel bad about poor care, yes. Right. It's their identity. If somebody says, your ED is not functioning well, they feel bad about it. They won't blame anybody else. They will come back and say, Dr. Razak, I want to do this. We need to improve things. Which Mm -hmm. was great.
0: I think that's because I think all of us have been told how bad ED care is, in our individual EDs even when things are working. And I think most of us have experienced that perspective where everyone says the worst part of the hospital is the casualty department Um, and I think a lot of people on this call probably work in those worst departments so I want to take a step back in your journey because we are where you were before things were set up and so we have everyone working in the same place poorly designed everyone coming through the same entrance so you mentioned the first part triage about triage and triage protocols, because we've started a program where we're trying to push in the new, I think it came out last year, the WHO uh, ICRC triage program and making sure triage is set up. Um, what is the benefit? Why should every AD, so I'm guessing if I was to say triage defines an emergency department, would I be correct in saying you do not have an emergency department if you do not have triage? Absolutely right. I completely yes. agree with you. So the first part, if your AD doesn't have, If your AD doesn't have triage happening, then you do not have an emergency department. And you can go to emergency and website and you will find all the resources around triage. But what's the benefit of triage? What will triage solve in our process, in our setting?
1: Right. You know, people come in and they have different needs. And our job is to identify those who have the highest risk of death or disability early on. And that's why we do triage. triage means we sort out the word triage means to sort and to, so, by sorting means I want to know in the first minute of arrival this patient has a higher chances of bad outcomes and this patient can wait. And I when I make that decision, I can use my limited resources to take care of that patient. And that's what the, the entrance of any emergency department, needs to have some form of triage be it who be it some other oh. system uh, and all of them
0: do the same thing so do i need to have been emergency care trained do i need to have been an emergency physician or as a clinical officer at the emergency clinical uh, critical care course or can anyone set up triage do you have to need any let's say, master or certificate level training or it's something that as an department you can look at existing protocols work out how you can go to implement them. Yeah, do we need anything special?
1: No, the the (laughs) whole point of triage is to make it so simple that you don't have to have complex thinking. See, in emergency department, in any emergency, the first thing to go away or compromise is your ability to think. (laughs) You know, so we, we want people to have processes that does not require a lot of thinking. It requires action. So you say, well, you know, uh, if the patient comes in, how do they look? Like, are they talking to you? Do they have a pulse? Do they have blood pressure? Do they have, what is the respiratory rate? You take some vitals. you use the algorithm and make a quick decision. And that is what we need to do and so, make it uniformly same across the country if you can.
0: Yes, and that's what we're actually trying to do. So we're pushing the WHO one and we've done a lot of training in many facilities. So and I think the message on want to say is you do not have to be an emergency physician. You don't need to be an emergency care or critical care trained nurse each of your ADs should actually have triage available. Um, and it's if it's not there, then you do not have an ED, you have an outpatient center, and you should be really fighting to get an ED happening, uh, uh, triage happening in your emergency department. So one of the things you mentioned is, okay, so there's a triage component of it. Design, because most of our facilities are... De- Outpatient slash casualty was designed as a more clinic kind of setting. What would be optimal design for an AD? What is functional? Yes.
1: Right. Uh, Access is the number one thing, right? And and you have easy access for people who are walking in. And then you have somewhat separate access for your people who are being transported either by ambulance, hopefully sometime in the future or now. And they all need; they do not need to compete with each other. Your sick patients should be able to get in. Your wheelchairs, your your patients uh, who are being, you know, brought carried, in, yes. carried in, they should be able to get in right away. Oh, and okay. and in in my mind, I always thought that having um, an ambulance entrance separate from walk-in coming to an area of triage. Okay, so
0: entered. so separate entrances for your walking regular patients for your. Um, immobile or right. mobile, as I said, so coming through. And, so do they all end up at the same triage or do they end up at separate triage processes? I, w-
1: I would like it to be uh, the same triage area with two faces, one on the critical side, one on the non-critical side, so that you can, at night when you're not busy, you can have limited staff and you don't have to staff the two areas. So I like that kind of model so there's one triage and you can increase and decrease the number of people in there. Once you are there, then you need to have
0: very close to that area, your resuscitation areas. Ah, uh, so triage, and then a resuscitation area. Right. What do what, what you say? What's a resuscitation area? So right. I think we figured out triage. You needed to be able to have a set of protocols, uh, vital signs. So we need to create a resuscitation. What's a resuscitation area?
1: Resuscitation areas are rooms with with all the life saving equipment and supplies. That's and normally
0: not much in our setting, but let's go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so if if you had to design something in the emergency department after triage. I would say think about a standardized resuscitation room model. You say every district hospital will have one or two resuscitation rooms. That resuscitation room will have IV fluids. It will have tourniquet, for example. It will have vital signs equipment. I should be able to do cardiac. You know, if I am going to do uh, shock somebody, I will have a defibrillator. All the
0: basic stuff they need to be there. Can it does this have to be a room? Because I know I'm, I'm working because I know I've been to a lot of the centers. Does this have to be a room or can it just be a bed in a dedicated area of the ED? You,
1: it can be other ways. Okay. Yeah. When I say room, I mean an, really an area where you can provide those life-saving interventions quickly. Okay. Now, in, in many larger emergency departments, they have very large area with multiple beds. And they, they are multifunctional beds. And they say, well, you know, this, any bed can be a resuscitation bed. Uh-huh. In a smaller ED, you might want to start with a couple of resuscitation beds and expand that service across uh, other beds. So that's one piece. So your level one uh, triage patients, your sickest patient can be triage sent from triage to the
0: resuscitation. Straight to that bed. Right. Yes. Okay.
1: And, then, and then you have another area separate from the resuscitation in many places called fast track or urgent care, where you can send your ankle sprains, where you can send your minor bruises, maybe small lacerations. So they are not clogging, competing with the resuscitation patient.
0: So we want to see them separately. We want to see the resuscitations in on one side, right. and then we want to see the other walk-in right. ones on the other side, right. okay, good.
1: Right. And because sometimes you will have patients who will walk in, but they're very sick. Yes. So you, know, you will triage them, do quick assessment, they're very sick they'll go to resuscitation even though they walked in yes and sometimes ambulance people will come in and there's a north sick. you can get send them to the fast mm-hmm. track but keep them separate separate this decision making yes.
0: resources everything is different the mindset is very different ah uh, so i think yeah that's also i think uh, we're getting to the questions now which is actually some of the good questions um but i think just to summarize from what you need is saying is you need to cut so they Immobile patients and those walking in, it's coming through separate entrances. Ideally, you should have two separate triages. And the critically ill patients then are harnessed into the resuscitation area. And then the non-critically ill then directed. So trying to separate as much as possible. And I know we're not talking about having two separate buildings. It's just designating areas. And I'll tell you from my experience is, but just designating an area as research station area and others as maybe clinic area, that on its own then, as you said, changes the mindset yeah. of people so that I know when I'm on this side it's a pick and you're on this side, then eh, we'll be fine. Uh so David Ondari, if someone has head injury, are you allowed to pump fluids uh to the patient. I think we've discussed around the fluids and uh, not really trying to get to a normal blood pressure, uh, but more maintaining systolics of 90, MAPs of about MAP 65. Uh, Romeo, I think we discussed triage. Anyone can do triage. You just need to come together as a department, look at the available triage program. We recommend the WHO for now because this, even the Ministry of Health normally will start with WHO. Uh, look at that triage process. And it's available on the Emergency Medicine Kenya Foundation website. You can only from there. Uh, Does NHIF provide ambulance services for emergency? Uh, That's MOSES. Actually, if you guys download, we've just updated, no, we've not told anyone, we've just updated the Casualty app. From the Casualty app, you can actually call NHIF directly. You can call NHIF ambulance access. Uh, So we've put in all these numbers, and what we're working on is for every county to put the emergency access number. So some of the counties actually have that number already. So it's already on the app, get the app, and you'll be able to get some of these numbers. How often? I we'll discuss training, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll take that second question and something I'll actually ask you, Nate, on this. Uh, we have someone from Pakistan. Oh, hey, Punjab. Uh, I'm a medical officer in trauma. I have a question. How can we improve emergency department system and emergency care? Uh, like, where do we start from uh, if one is working in a teaching hospital? I think that's what we've been discussing all the way through. Uh, this podcast uh, will be uh, and recording will be available on Doctor A online and we'll also push it on our website and you'll be able to quickly actually answer some of that question. But in terms of training, I think we've discussed training from a pre perspective, training from the emergency department. Do we all need to go back to school or is there an opportunity for in-service training and what kind of in-service training should we be looking at and how often should we be doing this?
1: Very important. Yes, uh, I am. I've been practicing for I don't know how long, and almost every month I do uh, some sort of training. Monthly. Monthly. Something comes up. So my institution expects me to read this or read that. Do this. Something is there.
0: So, yes. Okay.
1: And so th- that is the institutional requirement for keeping me up to date with things. Then there is uh, for the American Board perspective. We have to sit for boards. And, How often do you have to sit for boards? So it used to be like every few years. Uh, now it's every year. You have to do certain things ah. every year. Uh, read some papers. You know, sit for a minor test. Uh, make sure that they have. Instead of waiting for ten years, now they want you to be up to date every year. Yeah. So then you know you are constantly reading and you are constantly getting uh, up to date. I don't think. In today's changing medicine, especially for emergency medicine, because we are affected by all the specialties. Yes. So we need to keep up to date and, you know, uh, going to the conferences is a great way to learn. Uh, But the answer to your question, big yes. You have to
0: keep up. So, yes. And I think, uh, first of all, I'm really appreciating everyone on this call because this is what we talk about. So a lot of people think about gathering education or gathering knowledge as going to a course for five days, or going to another different locality and learning for two weeks. But I think even just this platform we're on right now, Datari Online, there is so much content that you can consume. So you don't... This will be at a podcast, meaning you can listen to this discussion as you have a cup of tea in the conference room. You can watch this video as you're relaxing in the house and use of social media. So I think we need to change the mentality that... um People have to go to a classroom to learn. There is so much information that's been pumped out. As a foundation, Emergency can we pump out a lot of information on our social media channels, on our website. As Dactary Online, they have so much content on their website that you can consume it when you want it, how you want it, and be able to say, so if you actually went through all the emergency content on Dactary Online, you'd be very good as an emergency care provider because it's there, and it's there, and it's really available for you. Um... So I think that's one of the things that we really look uh, needs to demystify is that you don't need to go to school to learn emergency care. I think all of us inherently can learn aspects of patient care by at- actually using some of these resources. Um, and I think uh, teamwork, I think that's one of the things I have discussed how the AD should be designed, how the AD should be flow. Um, one of the things I'm very passionate about and a lot of our training has been focused on is building teamwork. Because without teamwork, emergency care doesn't work. So I don't know what your perspective on this is. Absolutely, so um,
1: there's good evidence now that institutions that have trauma team, they tend to have a better outcome.
0: What's a trauma team?
1: So, <laughs> good, good, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're asking this question. So trauma team, uh, trauma is a multidisciplinary disease and we need people for emergency medicine, surgeons, Sometimes orthopedic surgeons or neurosurgeons in places where uh, airway is being managed by anesthesiologists, an anesthesiologist and anesthesiologist and nurses and a documenter who can write down what's going on. So there's a quality check later on. Those are the kind of people uh, when there is a sick enough trauma, a severe enough trauma, your institution needs to have a mechanism. You can call that team. They all come together. Now the problem is, you can put that system together, people will come down. But when you talk about team, just imagine uh, um, a football team. They all work together. Really, they have to pass the yes. the ball to each other, and they they trust each other, and that's why the team works. In medicine, sometimes it's not an, uh, it's not as seen as normal. People feel that I'm a better physician or a better surgeon than you are. They can't work in the team. To work in the team you have to respect each other mm-hmm. and so the institutions have responsibility of not only creating a team but teaching teamwork together how do you how do you respect each other and how do you work together once you have that structure very important for for us in in, in trauma care but for many other diseases teamwork working with nurses if i have a patient with heart attack and needs to go to the cath lab or if i need to talk to cardiologist, for example me, my my nurse, my cardiologist will work together for the same aim. We're not competing with each
0: other. Each other. I think I, I like the analogy of the football team because yeah, Kenyans love football. I think everyone is on APL and all other leagues that are there, and I like the concept that even in a football pitch, everyone. I mean, one passes the ball. passes, If I pass this patient to this doctor or this nurse takes over the patient, then the care continues. So I think then is there a need for us to build how do we build that i mean because i know most people are looking at it like yeah the last time i spoke to the orthopedic surgeon they were busy hurling um, in <laughs> profanity is my way yeah. but how do we build teamwork in the ad and how do we build teamwork across the hospital to be able to provide that care that's required for emergency patients
1: right that is a leadership that is, that comes from leadership if the leadership of the institution is committed to respect and focus on patient care before anything, then no, it doesn't matter how much revenue you're doing yes. or how many surgeries you're doing, you have to work for the patient. That is the tone of leadership. So, you know, I think um, sometimes, often actually, uh, the, the juniors follow what they see as their seniors do, oh, they yes. emulate. So seniors have to fit that tone and the institutional heads need to create an environment where everybody is respected and everybody's
0: focused on patient care. And I think also that also starts in terms of uh, those who are in the ED leadership. Right. I mean, being able to bring together your team because to be honest, if your ED team is not functioning, I mean, if you're not working as a team within the ED, then trying to get everyone else to work with you as a team is probably a challenge. Right. Cause so teamwork starts with your department before you start roping in other departments to say, or oh, let's collaborate. So if there's chaos in your ED, um, then that, and a lot of this as we're discussing, doesn't need you, cause I'm seeing someone, where can I train an emergency course? Um, again? People, we need to look at There's A lot of information that's available uh, for you to train. And, uh, I see someone actually put in a nice question. Simulation, um, should we be doing mock simulations of patients and how useful is this in our setting? Very helpful. Okay.
1: I think when I was training, we didn't have as much simulations. So we made a lot of mistakes on patients. Uh, we can avoid many of those. Uh, both in terms of decision-making as well as skills. Um, Simulation centers are highly variable, but if you have access, but even if you don't have simulation centers, just using a healthy patient and just going through the process of decision-making so it's a simulated environment, a safe simulated environment where you're learning. is very important. I think we all, all of us, have traditionally learned on patients.
0: Yes. Yes. And we, now still, we, think, we still learn on patients, right? yes. We you
1: learn on the patients, but also
0: don't try and learn before you get to the patient. <laughs> so you don't make the mistake in front of the patient. Before in front of the patient. Okay, so good. So um, just to look at holistically the AD. So we discussed there has to be triage. The design has to be well. There's a need for continuous learning and continuous training of the staff within the AD. There's a need to build leadership within the AD to build that teamwork. Within the AD and extending this to the rest of the hospital. Are there any other things we should be thinking about in terms of building effective emergency departments in our setting?
1: Yes. You know, I, I feel nurses have a very important role in the emergency, in emergency department, perhaps more than most other places. Mm. So they need to co own the emergency department with the physician leadership because without them, it doesn't work. Secondly, Uh, When people are scared to call their seniors, when they know that, oh, why did you call me? Or you should have known this. That culture promotes mistakes. Mm. So building a culture where it is okay to ask stupid questions. It is okay. You can call me. I will not judge you at that time. Uh, So that is, again, the leadership thing. I think having clear protocols and guidelines helps everybody. And sometimes, you know, uh, even after so many years of practice, I want to go and look at my guideline and see, you know, I'm not sure. Let me look at the standard of care and make decisions based on that. So as you have done, Dr. Uh, Shira, in your setting, having putting some time and giving as much guidance as possible.
0: Yeah. So having protocols. protocols. So we've given you free protocols. We actually have, you can get free protocols from the Emergency Kenya Foundation website. And we normally send this out um, to the facilities. Um, I think there was a question I was seeing there about research, which I think is your biggest passion. Um, I know in our setting, we have these myths and misconceptions about research. It's too time-consuming. It's doesn't bring me any money for sure. I can promise that. Um, and why? I mean, I'm all looking to be an academic. So what's the importance? I've seen this is a question from someone in Pakistan, but I think in, it applies in Pakistan, it applies in Kenya. What's the role of research? Like, should we be doing research in our setting and why should we be doing research in emergency care specifically, or trauma care specifically, in our setting? And What's the easiest way to do this (laughs) and the cheapest way?
1: Yes. You know, when when we say research, what we mean is to have a systematic way of answering a question. So that is all research is. It's not about writing a manuscript. It does does help write a manuscript. But when you see a problem in your setup and you say, you know, how do I fix this? That is a question. That's a research question. That's a research question. Yes. You know, you see a patient, you said, something went wrong. I think I should have done this. That's a research question. And then
0: you have several ways to answer that question. You can do a literature review
1: to answer the research question. So
0: that means looking at who has asked similar questions, I guess. Right, right. Yes. So looking
1: at literature, doing a literature review, talking to your friends, saying, you oh, know, this question. And if that question has not been answered by anybody else, then you say, well, I think it's an important question. If I'm asking that question, Perhaps others are also asking the question: can I help? Can, can, I be, um, can I do this research to answer that question? Or can I assist somebody to answer that question? And, and the, so once you have question clear, then you think about what is the right method to answer that question. So you come to a methodology, is it a, a clinical trial? Is it a pre- and post? Can I just do a review of previous charts, a retrospective study? and answer that question. So then you come to the methodology, you define that, collect data based on your methodology, and do the analysis, and that is and draw a conclusion. That is a process of research. Question that's bugging you, that's bothering you, that you think is gonna make patient care better, thinking about how to answer that question, then collecting information, analyzing information, drawing conclusion, and if you have energy, then write it as a paper. <laughs> <The> paper. <laughs> if you have energy,
0: I like that part. Um, I think one of the biggest gaps that exists in our system right now, and yes, I think we've all been asking the questions is data. So many of our units do not collect data, and I think then that becomes because so it becomes a problem. Like so, data in terms of being able to collect pre-hospital data. You know, at, at a EMS facility, EMS unit level, at a hospital ED level, how important is data? Mainly looking at it from the perspective, we am gonna move away from the research. How important is it to have data in terms of developing our emergency care systems?
1: I think it's, it's very important. And the reason I say it is because today in the world of science, we make decisions based on information data, not what I think, what you think. Hmm. Because, you know, um, uh, when we individually make decisions without data, sometimes we have to, uh, we can make an error, but data doesn't lie. So we want to be truthful and we want to get data. Now, how do we get data? Uh, I've always struggled with that because I have, you know, ran the emergency department being a clinician and then have been a researcher. And if I have been given a choice, I would always want my practitioners, my doctors and nurses to focus on the patient not on research. Focus on the patient, provide the best care, and then collect the data you need for the patient care. How? Now, you have some standard formats now. WHO has one, several others, where you can have a standardized form a trauma form or emergency department form where you can start collecting information. And all patients should. That data that you're collecting is actually very good for patient care but also helpful for research. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, what they do, uh, and maybe researchers will not like me, is (laughs) let's ask the provider, healthcare providers who are providing care to also collect data for me. I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think if you really need to collect a lot of other data, then have somebody
0: else assist. A separate system.
1: Assist the the Uh data collection. Assist the data collection and not make your doctors and nurses do your research data collection.
0: Just because, I'm yeah, because call. yeah, because yeah, that's really because yes, the focus should be on the patient. Right. But I think in our documentation for the patient yes. care, then then that is then data that someone else can review yes. and be able to collect. Because I think, to be honest, if your facility, your Im- ambulance service, or your emergency department is not collecting data, because you cannot know where you've come from or where to go to right. without the data. Now, uh, today we had a meeting actually, uh, where those uh, representatives from the Ministry of Health and they were mentioning that they struggle because they're going to Treasury to justify um, a budget to get money from from Treasury to fund something within emergency care. And uh, the person at the meeting was like, unfortunately, it was struck off the budget because I don't have data. I, can, I know it's a good idea, but without data, then there's nothing. And I've had this same discussion with many policymakers where... We cannot justify, we always say, and you say, we want ambulances, but or ambulances are doing so much, or we want this, but where is the data? And I think this discussion actually has also opened up my mind to a lot of data numbers, that we need one ambulance per 100,000 population, we need to get an ambulance to respond within five minutes we're having an emergency, or 20 minutes. So these are Factual data points that you then use in a discussion, you then use in an argument, and trying to push for services. Uh, I think I look at some of the questions. So more often or not, there will be a driver or a rider with a license near an emergency scene. If emergency call centers were set up, workingly with NTSA to have emergency contact numbers include the driver. Driver's license could be available for options. I think that's also a good suggestion. Um, I think there's a lot of thank you very much. I think we really appreciate the questions and thank you very much. Uh, I see a lot of you are really enjoying the discussions and I think it's not me, it's uh, my great friend here, Prof. U-Nate. Um So I think we're almost heading to the end of this. What would be your take-home points? Like you've have years of experience. You started from the beginning and you're still working in this system. And there's a lot of people, uh, in the audience or listening to this, that, are uh, looking for some form of inspiration. Cause you said from the beginning, from the beginning, from where we are, potentially, and here you are now, and things have developed over the years. What would be your take on points? Like what would you want us to leave kind of knowing?
1: Yeah. I, th- I think what will change the system is Ben Vashiro's. <laughs> people, leaders, at all levels, when they say, you know, I want to save lives and do not want my country or my my city or, or my neighborhood to have this issue, you will find ways to do that. So let's create, and what you're trying to create is creating a community and bringing them together so you can support each other. So it's leadership, it's, it's coming together, it's staying positive. Most important thing, I, we have seen improvements in places where people said can never be done. Hmm. And, you know, we have, a lot of us have a habit of saying, it can't be done in my country.
0: In my community.
1: In my community, it can't be done. And then you surprise yourself and say, you know what? I went with a very clear agenda. I knew that I needed 30 ambulances with a response time of 10 minutes. And I needed this call center. I was very clear what I want. I could dream this and I could paint a picture.
0: I will get it. Yes um i think yeah that's powerful and i think yes and that's what we're really trying and even with the community uh, that's joined online and everyone else who works with us through the foundation and even working with the facilities i think working together is something we really need to keep doing and keep dreaming and keep working and pushing to get some of these things implemented so really that's a very good uh take home point i'll just read some of the last comments and then probably we'll call it a day and invite actually online um to talk uh so let every health facility create an ED if none is that I think that's a very good thank you very much, uh Modesta. Every facility you work in must have an emergency department. We have explained the components, and none of those components cost costs millions of shillings. It just needs the people, uh, willpower, your willpower, your leadership, your inis- your initiative actually to put in things like triage develop different entrances. You don't even need to put up a whole building. There's a resuscitation area. I think some of those things are things we can actually do from now. I uh, see we've got Julius, we may talk about strengthening. in Hades. it's great, but it's talk about taking a long time to, uh, to achieve meaningful progress. Uh, regarding emergency care, uh, functional EMS system. I think we've discussed that around EMS system. And I think I think of all the things that, was, that has come out from this discussion is how how simple an EMS system should actually be. Because I think we always have this perspective, and again, from watching all these nine one one shows on TV, that for us to have an EMS system, we need thousands of ambulances, thousands of trained providers, but. If you actually look at it from their perspective, this scientific perspective, one ambulance per 100,000, five to 20 minute response with an average of 10, and go with these numbers to your policymakers. Because, be to if you go to a policymaker and tell them, we need 100 ambulances, they will laugh at you and move on. Okay? But if you now tell them, we have a population of a million people. If we get 10 ambulances and positioning them in this way so that we are having a five to 20 minute response, Look at existing EMT providers, and probably since if it's an Arab then though they will work and a bit of training. Look at upscaling the existing analysis. So let's not think about out of the world things, and I think this discussion for me has been very helpful. Really, thank you. Neda. As I said, he's got a lot of experience, and we are riding on his experience to look at also how are we doing in things in our setting. Um, and improving things and let's move away from the perspective as you said it cannot be done or we are at the mercy of a cartel we are the mass. let's not look at what cannot be done but be more hopeful about what we can achieve um and i think a lot i'd tell you for sure a lot has been done in kenya and you think from pakistan perspective you have seen the difference that it has made over the years and we look forward to getting to that level in kenya looking back and say this is as far as we've gone um i think with that i think i won't say thank you very much uh Prof. Nade. uh really appreciate and we'll continue working together it's I an think, honor thanks um sir. yes you inspire a lot of us um and hopefully the inspiration translates to the ground people um so remember we have this uh, talks uh, so this is a webinar podcast so it will be available as a video presentation be available as a podcast through doctor online and uh for us at Emergency Medicine Kenya Foundation. Remember, download the casualty app. It's fantastic. We've really listened to the feedback we've gotten uh, and updated it. If you look at the new app, it has a lot of uh, new things. For those who have Apple devices, we promise you by Christmas, you'll have the Apple version of the app. That will be a Christmas present to all of you.